Hey, how's it going? Uh, we would also normally be joined by Dave Wiener, but he's not here tonight okay. for uh, basketball reasons. David's turn. Um, he, he, and just, just for future reference, he's Jake Weiner. Jake Weiner? Yeah. That's the first, I, I have a, I, know, I went to a school with a girl whose last name was actually literally pronounced Weiner, spelled the same, so I never, uh, I never know. I guess Weiner's always the safest one to err on the side of <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jake, you can, you can lay into me next week when you're back. Um, I'll, I'll get over it, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so, um, we got Got a good amount of topics to talk about. Preseason just wrapped up uh, last weekend. Uh, Bulls, unfortunately, went down in Omaha uh, during Creighton Fest, McDermott Mania. But our own Tyler Place had uh, press credentials for that game, so I'm sure that was a great experience for you, Tyler. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a pretty exciting experience to go through that whole thing, even though I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> All right. Um, so... What we're going to try to do on Bulls session is not only provide you, the listeners, with all the hard-hitting Bulls analysis that you want, but we're also going to try to keep tabs on popular Bulls players from the recent eras, such as, you know, Derrick Rose and Joe Tim Noah, and, uh, you know, bring you our own variant of Ricky O'Donnell's infamous The Booze News about Carlos Boozer and, you know, all the all the great recent legends in Chicago Bulls lore. And, uh, you know, we'll also keep tabs on what's going on in the social media universe with our favorite Bulls players, and we'll try to keep you in the loop every week. Um, so with the season set to tip off on Thursday, I thought it would be good to kind of wrap up the preseason. You know, we've got some storylines from within the team regarding lineups and, you know, who did well and who didn't do so well. And um, I thought we could start with that. So, Jacob, you wrote a piece recently published on the front page of Blog Bowl regarding uh, the Michael Carter-Williams trade and uh, where you think he fits in going forward. So I was curious if you could maybe start us off here with, um, you know, just kind of your thoughts on Michael Carter-Williams and uh, just kind of give us a summary of what you think. So. I thought I think that Michael Carter Williams, you know, if you look at that trade with for Tony Snell in a vacuum, it makes sense. Uh, like Tony Snell, he has the makings of like a three and D guy, like somebody who every team you know is a, a man short of. But for anyone who's watched Tony Snell in the last three years, we all know what he is. He's streaky at best, and uh, you know, t- a total ghost most nights. And Carter Williams for his Laws, you know, there is the makings of a talented player in there, but he's just a really, really horrible fit with this Bulls team uh, for this season and going forward. Just, you know, you look at a roster and you think, how could we possibly get worse at shooting? And then they trade for Michael Carter Williams. Uh, and he just, I mean, his shot is so broken. And in order for him to succeed, you feel like. He needs to be surrounded by a really talented team when it comes to shooting. And there's just, like, no combination of players that the Bulls are going to be able to throw on the floor uh, that are going to be able to kind of mask uh, MCW's weaknesses and let him play to his strengths. I I completely agree. Um, You know, as happy as I was to have Snow off the team after pretty much stinking it up almost every night for the last or something years. Uh, he, it, it just, it really doesn't make that much sense. And it, one, th- and it kind of just, there were already so many questions with who's going to end up getting that backup point guard spot. Is it going to be Daniel Valentine? Is it going to be Isaiah Kanan? Is it going to be Dr. Dinwiddie? And I feel really bad for Dinwiddie because I feel like he had a pretty, especially compared to those three and Jerry and Grant, who we all I think agree had an absolutely horrible preseason. And really hasn't played well at all except for one game in um, the Summer League Championship. I thought Dinwiddie was arguably the most impressive backup guard that showed up during the preseason. And because he was on the only unguaranteed contract, the Michael Carter-Williams trade kind of forced him off the team and erased what was going to be a very, not necessarily easy, but uh, a simple answer to one of the rotation questions is now completely just gone. 
So now that he's been cut, I don't know, maybe he'll get picked up by the Windy City Bulls or something. But I, I think that the MCW trade, it just, it just completely mucks up the rotation again. And even though he can do, he, he's a good rebounder for his position. I mean, go figure, he's like 6'6". Six, six. Um, and he's not, in that one game that we saw in Omaha, I thought he did a good job of, uh, did a good job of driving the rim. And, you know, he played good on defense. He fought for screens well, which I thought was a big complaint with a lot of the guards last year on the Bulls was that they couldn't get screens on defense. And I know he projects to be a good defender, but, I mean, the shooting, which, I mean, everybody just loves to harp on, and, I mean, why not? It's obviously the biggest problem with this team. And he just, his jumper in the, I think, maybe the two or three jump shots he took, it was just absolutely busted. I mean, it's got, the prognosis for that thing getting better is not very good. So, I... Tyler, I'm sure you're probably in concur with what on here. Yeah, I, I know I saw a report. Uh, I think it was yesterday. I can't remember who said it, but after practice, they said there was at least like three coaches working with Carter Williams on his jump shot, just trying to figure things out and tweak it a little bit to get a little bit more consistent. But I think you guys all hit on it pretty well. Um, you know, I think in looking at the trade, you know, management saw that Tony Snow after four years wasn't going to be a fit for this team. And they knew if they could get something for him before he hit the market, they could. Um, and they went for it with Michael Carter-Williams. And just one of those things where they weren't still quite sure of their backup, you know, position. And they thought they would have a sure thing in him. And, you know, I think that's kind of the way they looked at it. At least get something for Snow while they could, which is amazing in itself. But my issue with the trade is that I didn't really mind the idea of Wade really just being the main backup point guard. Like I thought that it would that something that I think we were seeing in preseason, which was really smart, was Hoiberg giving Wade sort of the the dirk minutes in the sense that you, you start the game but you make the quick exit in the first, come back at the end of the quarter and start with the with the second unit in the second quarter. And then you play Wade with Cannon or maybe Valentine or just anyone who can shoot. And let Wade be like the nominal point guard, and uh, and surround him with shooting. But with Carter Williams, it really messes up that idea, because now like when he's on the floor with Wade, you know you're you're in the exact same spacing nightmare that you are when Rondo's on the court. And uh, I think that that uh, a Cannon Wade backcourt, I mean, it would have been a uh, you know sieve on defense. But it could have been interesting on offense. I also I don't want to vilify MCW for this decision, but I really was just amazed. I mean, I shouldn't be at this point, but I was still absolutely flabbergasted at the short-sightedness of management to allow him to even entertain the notion of wearing Derrick Rose's number just after. And not not because I think it should be retired immediately or anything, but, I mean, you clearly have so much of the fan base that is aching from that trade, still reeling from that trade, that still clearly missed Derrick Rose. And for them to do, I mean, so some people were shocked by the amount of backlash that they got from that decision and the controversy it generated. But I, I was just really amazed that they that they didn't even see that coming and that they thought, well, you know, go ahead. Like, let's just let's just pretend like this guy hasn't even been here or done anything for us for the last five or something here. I really I could not believe it. And I shouldn't be surprised at this point because go figure it's guard pack. But it, it just I really it, I, <laughs> it, it, I, I'm at a loss for words when I first heard that they were even going to let him do that. No, I completely agree. I'm in the same boat as you. I wasn't. So much as upset that they gave him the number is how quick they did it. You know, they get rid of this guy who was the youngest MVP ever and, you know, completely turned around the franchise, you know, for the first time since Jordan. And you just kind of give away his number like that so quickly. It just kind of screams pettiness. <laughs> for a yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad somebody came in and finally came to their senses and said, you know, at least MCW did and, you know, made that switch at the last minute. Yeah, he gave a really eloquent uh response for why he decided not to do it. I was really, I do commend him for that. I know we just kind of tr- dragged him through the mud before he's even played his first official game in a Bulls uniform, or regular season game, rather. But, you know, I, I thought it was pretty commendable that he was willing to dodge all that uh, controversy. For sure. 
All right, so that's enough um, being mean to Michael Carter Williams. Let's 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 be mean to some other Bulls players. So there's there's a gap at the four still at this point. I don't think yeah, I don't think to my knowledge Hoiberg has really firmly decided on who the starter at that spot should be. And there's a lot of different input from a lot of different places. I think Taj Gibson probably had easily had the most consistent and effective preseason out of him and Miritich and Portis. I know there's a lot of people such as ESPN Zach Lowe that think Portis should probably end up starting there eventually. Um, I was very hopeful that this would be a big breakout year for Miritich, given he was probably going to be the most prolific three-point shooter on the team. And he had an abysmal preseason. It was just not – he had one good game. I I forget who it was. I think it was against the Cavs. I could be wrong. And it was – other than that, I think he got into – I think he got into double figures like once. It it was just really bad. So I'm curious what – who do you think of those three should end up getting the nod for the starting four spots? There's still an argument for Miritich just from a spacing standpoint, but further than that, I mean, it's it's pretty much anyone's guess what Hoiberg's going to roll out against the Celtics on Thursday. So, uh, Tyler, who do, who do you think is going to end up getting the nod from Fred? I mean, I think it has to be Taj. Um, at this point, he's earned it. You know, even though maybe the spacing on offense doesn't quite work out, um, he's been successful those you know, through preseason and, you know, playing with those starters. And, it, you know, like you said, it's been really disappointing to see Nico not step up and, you know, take charge of that role, which we all think he should have and would have done. But, um, you know, and then you look at Portis, and he's in the same boat as Nico. He really underperformed during preseason when we thought he would all, you know, he would step up into that role too. But, um, you know, I think it's a no-brainer at this point. And it has to be Taj. Uh, I'm going to disagree. I think that, Taj is really good at the little things, and he has had a really strong preseason. But I still think you got to let Miritich start, if only to give him some confidence. You, know, you have to assume that the Bulls are going to try and bring him back, and I, I imagine this is going to be Taj's last season in Chicago. Uh, uh, this is contract year. I think that you let Nico start. You you know you say, hey, like we're rolling with you. Let him find a groove. Let him find a rhythm. Like you watch him play in that Spanish team, and he just seemed so comfortable in, uh, with that Olympics group, and he really you know knew understood his role and was able to do some like really creative things on offense. And I think that he still feels sort of like uh, he doesn't understand where he fits in with his Bulls group. I think you see that with his like kind of questionable shot selection sometimes. And you give him a chance to start, and and you, and and beyond just him, uh, like from a mental standpoint, I think that the offense is just not going to work at all with Gibson and uh, and Robin Lopez on the floor together. I mean, yeah. I'm looking at I'm looking at Taj's shot chart, and anywhere outside of like the immediate rim area, he is just horrible. And they're going to need him to you know just to fire away like 15 foot elbow jumpers. But, I mean, last year he was making uh, about 40% from there, which is, like, pretty terrible. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, just to butt in real quick. Um, yeah, I mean, while I think Tasha start, I think, you know, what we're seeing with Fred kind of waiting and not making that decision, I think it will end up being Nico for those reasons that you just said. Um, I just think he's seeing the same thing as kind of we're seeing with the offense, and he's just kind of waiting and making sure Nico's – maybe healthy or what, but I think at the end of the day, I think he does end up starting Nico just be, you know, for those reasons you stated. Yeah. And it's something that I think with Taj is that you have the positional versatility where Taj definitely can play minutes at backup center. So I would love to see Taj come in early for Robin Lopez, keep Robin fresh, let Taj, you know, play center and let him and Miritich get as many minutes on the floor in the, uh, in the front court together. I think that's something that we saw in Nico's rookie year, uh, we didn't see so much last year, and a lot of that was just because of Pau Gasol just kind of pushed everything, pushed everyone down a peg. Um, but I think that a, a Taj and Nico front line could be uh, fun, very fun to watch. Yeah. Um, I will say that the thing that the other thing to keep in mind is that 
Nico is in a contract year, as is Taj. So even if this does end up inevitably being Taj's last year on the Bulls, the Bulls still need to figure out what Nico's value is, given you know he he is a very up and down player, or at least he has been very streaky, um, regardless of what his role has been. Even though he did have that great stretch to end the year last year, so I think that. Ultimately, next year, Portis is going to end up being the starter. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see if Nico can carve out a consistent up because he's going to, and if he does, he's going to command a lot of money. And even though the cap's going up, I still think that if he ends up having a very good year, he could end up getting something. And this number is going to sound crazy initially, but with the number rising and everything. He, he could end up commanding somewhere very close to $20 million a year, which, again, sounds ludicrous, but that's what Ryan Anderson got go to the Rockets this year, doing a lot of the same thing. But if Nico starts, he's going to be asked to do in that role, which is just bomb the hell out of the three-point line and make them at a very good clip. So I'm hoping he does well, but... I think that if he ends up not doing so great, he's going to be relegated to that bench role. And maybe they'll end up starting Hodge, but I think that Portis is clearly the one that they're going to roll with in the long run at some point. It, whether it happens sooner or not or later remains to be seen. I think that I think that the Bulls have a really good chance to re-sign Nico for a decent price, mostly because of his restricted free agency status. You saw that this year, outside of a couple weird situations of like, Alan Crabb and Tyler Johnson, that most teams are kind of wary to, to send big offer sheets to restricted guys because it kind of hamstrings them for, the, for uh, critical parts of free agency. That's true. But the, the biggest difference between a guy like Miritich and Ryan Anderson is Miritich's ability to really be a facilitator and a playmaker, to put the ball on the floor and draw contact and also make the right pass. Um, I'm... I'm I'm still very high on Miritich. I know that the shooting comes and goes, but there there is like a, the qualities of an excellent basketball player in there. A guy who really gets to the line at an elite rate if you give him the opportunity to uh, to drive to the basket. And I do think that Portis, that the front office values Portis. I mean, they were thrilled when he fell to them in the draft last year, but from watching him in preseason. I think he's still a ways away uh, from being able to be a steady contributor, and I think that that Miritich um, is a far superior player at this point. Yeah, I agree. Um, just one quick thing, and I think Jacob, you said this, uh, or maybe it was George, but I think Fred getting to use him in the right way is a big deal. If we're just having him roam the three-point line and just picking and popping. That's not really using his skill set wisely. If we can get him in situations where he can drive and even into the post where he can, um, you know, use his creativity and get to the line, I think that'll help him, you know, a lot more this season. But obviously we got to wait and see, you know, moving forward how Fred ends up using him with this team. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that's that's like a huge – the roster construction is a huge detriment to him because they're going to ask him mostly to just spot up I mean, with between Rondo, Wade, and Butler, they don't need guys to facilitate and like be creative off the dribble. They've got more than enough of that. So I hope that that Fred is able to conjure up some lineups that let Nico be Nico. All right then. So who would you guys say were your biggest winner and your biggest loser from this slate of preseason games that we just saw? Uh, Jacob, why don't you why don't you start with yours? Uh, I thought one of my big winners was Isaiah Cannon. Uh, just, I think that he struggled in Philadelphia last year being asked to do way too much. I mean, he is a shooting guard that is unfortunately not tall enough to play shooting guard. Um, but you see, you saw in lineups where he was paired with Wade or paired with Rondo that he gives the Bulls uh, a little bit of spacing. Uh, I mean, he's pretty horrible on defense, but I don't think anybody expected otherwise. But he's he just provides another element uh, on the floor that will hopefully loosen things up for everyone else. And for the contract that we signed him to, uh, it's not terrible. Um, and then my big loser definitely is Jerry and Grant. 
who was the uh, supposed prize of the Derrick Rose trade, Jerry Grant just, I'm not sure what he's good at. Uh, he doesn't seem confident shooting. Uh, he does not seem like a good facilitator on offense. He seems honestly totally lost. I mean, he must, he definitely, if you would ask me uh, on October 1st, who's going to be the Bulls' backup point guard, I would have said Jerry and Grant, without a doubt. But when you look at how the preseason shook out with the Michael Carter-Williams trade, just how abysmal he must have looked, uh, both in preseason and you know, behind closed doors, for them to do all, make all these moves because they realized that they're, that the big you know sneaky prize from the Derrick Rose trade was uh, not so great. I totally agree. And I, unfortunately, I think that's going to kind of like play into the narrative going forward of was, well, I wouldn't say he was the prize of the Derrick Rose trade. I think that was definitely Robin Lopez. He was, now that uh, once Calderon got traded, it was really all they got back was Lopez and Grant. And people are going to look back now and they're going to, point to Grant, who has arguably fallen behind after the MCW trade, MCW, and Isaiah Kanan in the rotation, and as well as Denzel Valentine, if Valentine ends up playing a back point guard. And people are just going to say, was that just more bulls and nepotism from Garpacks of just acquiring Horace Grant's nephew just to put him on the roster? So and, I, and, a, and a fellow Notre Dame guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I um I kind of hope he maybe it's I mean, this might be a little embarrassing for him, but I do hope that he maybe spends a little bit of time in the game kind of find a shot maybe That's a big thing that I I think that could be useful for the Bulls now. But interesting to see how they use that this year in the inaugural season with the Winter City Bulls, who they send down there and who ends up um who ends up working out from there and being called up for that. I'm I'm really excited about the D League team. Uh, I don't mean to take this way off course, but I think that Portis should play there a lot. I, I hope that Grant plays there a lot. It's just an opportunity for guys to get out there and hone their craft a little bit in a situation where they're not afraid of getting a quick hook if they make a, a mistake early on. Yeah, it's a confidence booster, too, for especially those two. Absolutely. So I would say, from my perspective, I think the biggest winner is probably Wayne Wade. Um, and I think it's... It wasn't just him individually that won. I think it was the Bulls because I, I talked about earlier, very early in the preseason, probably about two games in, that he, he, I think he has the potential to be a much better three-point shooter than what he's historically done in season. And when you look at how he's done in the postseason and comments he's made about him working on that shot more and kind of holstering it and only using it as a secret weapon and also looking at where his misses were in terms of most of them coming at the end of shot clocks and this being just kind of like heat of the basket. I think he's a much better three-point shooter than he's given credit for. And he shot, I believe, something like 43.7% in the preseason from three, which last year would have been good for fourth best in the NBA. So if he's able to shoot, and not, he doesn't even need to shoot above 40%. If he can shoot just, just above league average, really, on maybe, I don't know, two or three attempts per night, if Butler can have a bounce-back year from shooting beyond the arc, this he's proven he can do, and as he's kind of done in a pattern over the course of his career so far, it totally rewrites the narrative about the bull spacing, and it really erases a lot of the issues that you have. And then if I mean, Lord knows what's going to happen with Rondo. I mean, he did shoot, what, 36% last year, but he looked pretty broken from shooting beyond the earth in the, uh, in the preseason. And, you know, if they do end up starting near this, then you've got, you got four guys that can potentially shoot around or above league average from three. And I think that that's really going to defeat the narrative that a lot of people have used to write this team off that they're the worst shooting combo in the league, or worst shooting trio, rather, among the three alphas. I think that they probably heard all the noise, and if we, and we especially, I think, probably is out to prove this year that he's a much better shooter from beyond the arc than people have given credit for. And he kind of proved it um, to start the preseason, so I commend him for that, and I give him big ups for that. I kind of touched on it earlier, but I'm pretty sure the biggest loser, in my view, was Spencer Dinwiddie, who I think was, he had a great summer league. He was 
poised, I think, really with kind of weak competition from Jerry and Grant and Isaiah Kanan to kind of sneak in and get that spot. And the only thing he didn't have going for him was a guaranteed contract. And he played a, he played a good amount in the preseason. He actually, I believe, started the game against either, I believe it was against the Cavaliers. And he really, I thought he did a good job, and I thought he merited being able to stay on the team, which really just baffles you again when you look at they flip Tony Snell for another point guard that can't shoot. I'm not saying Dinwiddie's a marksman himself, but I think that he played himself into a spot where he should have been legitimately considered for the backup point guard role. So for them to just kind of take him to the curve immediately, I hope he gets picked up by somebody because I think he proved that he really deserves to be on an NBA roster and that he can be a successful player in this league. And I really hope that someone and some other team recognizes that and give him a shot because I think he really deserves it. Yeah, I agree. I think if I'm the Sixers, I make that call because news came out that Jared Bayless today is going to miss like the first month. And I think right now all they have is Sergio Rodriguez. So if I'm the Sixers, I think that's one of the first guys I'm looking at to kind of fill in that backup or even maybe starting role for the time being. Oh, you're forgetting point, points Dario. <laughs> I, I, I love Dario Sarge. I'm, I've sent out some weird fantasy trade requests already trying to, trying to get Dario Sarge. I digress. Um, yeah, I guess uh, my biggest winner, I think, of the preseason off to side with Jacob here. I think it was Isaiah Kanan or Cannon. I'm not sure how you say that last name. But I think, you know, at that very first preseason game, I think he the plan wasn't even to play him in that regular rotation. He was behind even like Denzel Valentine. But then you saw once he got hurt, uh, Kanan really step into that role, kind of being that off guard next to Dwayne Wade and. He, you know, he played pretty well. He hit some shots. He played actually some competent defense. Um, I think it was back in July once that signing happened. I wrote a pretty tough article on him saying how bad the signing was. And, you know, he probably wouldn't provide the Bulls anything. But, you know, if he can continue to, you know, shoot the ball well and play strong defense like he did in the preseason, you know, he's got a chance to carve out a nice little role for him once the regular season starts. So um, he was my biggest winner, I think, of the preseason. My biggest loser – uh, would be Bobby Portis. Um, he had a strong showing in summer league, and you know you kind of hope that entering his second year, he'd really make a kind of a leap to compete for that power forward position or at least a regular spot in rotation. And from what we saw in the you know preseason, it just it wasn't there. Uh, he's still kind of all over the place defensively, offensively. He was just seemed kind of uncomfortable. Um, I'm looking at his stats right now. He only shot. 32.7% from the field, only shot 20% from three. Um, I know what a lot of people were hoping for was him to kind of be that next stretch four behind Nico, uh, especially with this group to kind of space the floor out a little bit. But, you know, if, as we can see by, based on his stats, you know, he didn't really do that in the preseason. He didn't knock down shots. Um, he turned the ball over and his, defensively his rotations weren't there. And I think he even fell behind Felicio in the, uh, rotation a little bit so it was kind of disappointing showing for him in the preseason where it should have been a stronger one so um i'm not sure what your guys thoughts are on that but he was definitely one of my um definitely one of my biggest losers well, from you the preseason. mentioned felicio and I, I i thought it was amazing really that even with how ineffective at times a lot of the bulls bigs were i thought robin lopez played fairly well but I, it seemed like they were just deliberately not playing felicio nearly as much as they should have, given that I thought it was pretty obvious he should be the backup center incumbent. And he would just, I think he, he would bear, I'm not sure how many minutes per game he averaged in the preseason, but it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been more than like 10 or 12, honestly. Like there were so many stretches where you'd just be wondering, where is this guy? And then he wouldn't even get in until like the fourth quarter of these preseason games. And I really hope that that's not a reflection of what's to come uh, for the regular season, because I really do think that they're going to need him. And I, the guy is, the guy's such a freaky, underrated athlete. And he and I and he didn't do great. I thought over the summer he was kind of an afterthought on the Brazil Olympics team because of Nene, but he had some pretty okay performances um, in the summer league. He was definitely one of their. Um, he was definitely one of the players that they needed to have the success that they did there. So I'm I'm hoping he gets more. I know I know you were just harping on Portis a lot, and I just talked about Felicio. But I was I still thought it was pretty amazing, even though with how pretty ineffective Portis looked, that 
they still weren't really opting to go to Felicio as early as they should have. I think with with Portis, it, you the game is just moving too fast in his head still. Uh, yep. He's just not processing things like in a in a way that indicates that he's like a mature NBA player yet. I mean, the skills and the tools are still there, and it's more a question of is his brain going to be able to catch up to his body at this point with with Portis. Um, with Felicio, I mean, Felicio is so good at rolling. He sets the most vicious screens. The dude is huge. He's he's like a school bus. And then <laughs> and then he just like pivots, goes, makes a beeline for the basket. And you know, it's like I don't want to get in his way. I'm not trying to bump that man. You know, going to the hoop. He's huge. Absolutely yeah. not. I, I I worry that, that he's not going to get the chance uh, or enough of a chance early on. I mean, who knows, injuries and, and whatever. Uh, it's an 82-game season. I'm sure he'll play some. But the team just has so much invested between, uh, I mean, financially with Robin Lopez, uh, draft picks with Nico and Portis, and, you know, just the kumbaya factor of keeping Taj happy, um, that Felicio is, is just going to be... Uh, pegged for that fifth that fifth spot in the big rotation, but um, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the guy can play. It's interesting because you would think you know Felicio is like one of the very few gems that I think we can consensus agree that Garpacks have found, and they're just not spearheading for him to play. And you would think they want to sell him off and prove to people, hey, we we actually know what we're doing, guys. Look at this dude we found from Brazil out of nowhere. Yeah, I think uh, I think we well, I think we saw towards the end of the preseason him kind of taking those backup center minutes behind Lopez a little bit and passing Portis in the rotation. Uh, I think I said this on Twitter, maybe even last week. It, it reminds me a lot of the Etwan Moore situation last year, where he played really strong in the preseason. Um, everybody knew he should have been in the regular rotation based on how he was playing. Even the players at one point said it. Uh, but even as the season started, he just wasn't getting any time. And it took, a, you know, an injury or two to, for Hoiberg to finally throw him in. And once he did, we saw, you know, his talent and how well he played and how well he could play with those guys. And I just hope it doesn't turn into that where Hoiberg, you know, it may take him till December or January to realize he needs to be playing Felicio, um, you know, and it's too late already. You know, this needs to be something that happens on Thursday. So I just don't want to see that mistake happen again. Yeah, that's a good comparison with each one. All right, let's do a quick pivot here then, and let's um, if we're gonna talk about on this podcast, we're gonna keep tabs on um, Bulls legends or recent legends, I guess would be a better way to put it. I, I think we would be remiss if we weren't to talk about um, the Derrick Rose civil trial that just concluded. So I think we should just briefly um, just have kind of like a quick summary of what your guys' thoughts were on that, um, just on the thing itself. I thought, I really hope that people don't use this. I know that he's had a particularly uninspiring run on the court recently. Um, last season, there were a lot of people that would argue he was one of, if not the worst starting point guard in the NBA. And at times, he, he really did look to struggle. And I'm worried that a lot of you know, I see people all the time just lashing into him on Facebook for no reason. And now that this whole thing has happened, even though he maintained his innocence the whole way through and he was found um, not liable, I believe is what the term that's used in the civil trials of any of his charges, I'm still worried that people are going to irrevocably attach this to his legacy. And for a guy who is, you know, the youngest MVP in league history, you know, I really... I really hope that people don't firmly attach that to who he is as a person and, you know, what he has already accomplished in his career to this date um, at the end of the day. So, I don't know, Tyler, maybe you could um, shed some light on that or what you just give me your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily going to tarnish his quote-unquote legacy. I think his legacy is going to be defined by his injuries more than anything. Um, with what's happened with the trial, I think it's definitely hurt his reputation moving forward. Uh, I think that's definitely going to be a shadow on him. 
but like I said, it's not going to be anything that defines his legacy. Um, and I don't know. I personally, I, I'm not going to move forward and you know support him. Um, I've read enough of his deposition and everything that's happened to know that you know there's still a very real chance, even though he wasn't found guilty um, of li- being liable for the rape, um, there's still a very, very real chance that something did happen that night. And so I think we still need to respect you know the victim Jane Doe's you know what she's going through right now. But um, yeah, I guess in terms of his legacy, I don't think it will tarnish it any, in any way, but I think that'll still be in the back of people's minds, you know, whenever it's, you know, he's brought up and what he's done. So, um, yeah, I guess that's just kind of where I'm at with things. I, I think that this is just another reminder that unfortunately we see all too often that uh, our favorite players are not always our favorite people. And, uh, you know, I, I try and, and separate those two things, try and, you know, think about guys just in terms of how they play on the court. Uh, it's hard. A lot of people get caught up, assume the guy that makes the amazing play is must be an amazing man off it. But, um, you know, guilty or not guilty, I mean, there, there's enough that has been, you know, out in the public that this was just did not doesn't sit right uh, with me. And, um, you know, just a reminder that we should not be building these guys up. Uh, I mean, my my last website was, was named after Derrick Rose, which uh, seems very foolish in hindsight. And, um, you know, these, these they're, they're just people, and you don't, we don't really know them. Yeah. And, yeah. It, is, it does kind of bring up the, you know, the question – when you're looking at stuff like a lot of people say, you know, can you, or how do you separate someone's art from the artist? And I think that, you know, a lot of us, it it is very difficult. I think for a lot of fans, um, you know, that especially someone like me who, I mean, I absolutely fell in love with the way the guy played basketball. I watched every single game of his MVP season on television. I'd come home every night from school and I'd, I'd, it was must watch TV for me just to see the way he played. I mean, I fell in love and I wholeheartedly supported the guy. And I mean, I really, I, I did read all of the, I read all the proceedings when they came out and I mean, it really didn't sit well with me either, but I, you know, I, it's, it's such a difficult thing for me to talk about. So I don't want to say that I'm not going to support him going forward because I really do. I really do wish him nothing but the best, and I'm extremely grateful for everything that he did um, when he was a bull. Um, that's not to say that I don't hope that um, stuff worked out for Kanto either, but it, um, I guess I'm just one of those bull fans that has trouble letting go, and I'm still. It's I really, really do. I guess it isn't going to tarnish his legacy, but I also think that even though he was already someone who was, um, you know, kind of tone deaf in terms of the way that he handled himself in public perception, and I mean, we saw that with not only afterwards, but the fallout on social media when he when the pictures came up of him uh, posing with the jurors afterwards, and um, but also, I mean, he's. You know, he's been in questionable situations before with all the academic issues that he had coming out of Simeon and also coming out of Memphis. But, you know, he is also someone that I think it did a considerable amount of good for the city of Chicago while he was here. And I, I hope that when people are going to evaluate him as a person, they don't put what has happened in a case that he was found not liable at the top of judging him. Because there, I think that there is a lot of good there based on what he did for Chicago, not only on the court, but also in terms of his charity work and whatnot and the way that he would care, that he cared about the city and the people in it. So I hope that if you, I, I hope that for the people that are going to evaluate his character, that they do a considerable amount of digging, because I think that there is a lot of questionable or directly, you know, not very good material, but I think that there's also a lot of good that he has accomplished. 
Right. That was, I understand that was probably a difficult topic to talk about on the inaugural podcast, and hopefully we'll have more positive things to discuss going forward with, um, with Bulls players um, that have moved on. But I think we've gone, we've gone for quite a bit at this point, so I think we should um, wrap up by looking at the opening slate of our games. So the Bulls are going to open at home on Thursday against the Celtics. Um, they'll play the Pacers two days later at home as well. Um, then they'll travel to Brooklyn uh, to play the Nets, who I think the Nets are probably going to be the worst team in the NBA this year, uh, this year and for the next two or three years. I mean, the Celtics just completely built them in that in that Gerald Wallace trade. I mean, it, it's an absolute joke. And then they play the Celtics again um, uh, on Wednesday, November 2nd, and then they close out again, or for the slate that we're looking at, the last one in this kind of opening slate is again at home against the Knicks. So it will be Derrick Rose and Joe Kim Noah's homecoming uh, to the UC. So uh, how do you see them faring in this opening five-game stretch? I'm not optimistic. No, you know, I'm, I'm not the most optimistic person either looking at this. Um Especially those first two games, you start off with Boston, um, and they have you know a new center in Al Horford, who's you can look back to the recent years has always given the Bulls trouble, being that kind of stretch five and bringing out our center and just really just killing them on that pick and pop. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how you know Lopez and Felicio and some of our big guys kind of deal with that um, with him and a new team, but. Um, that'll give them a really good test here, I think, early on for a team that's supposedly um, supposedly supposed to be one of the top two or three teams in the East. Um, and even with the Pacers, they're looking at them, and they've tried to uh, re- rework their uh, style offensively with hiring Nate McMillan and, Mc- Mc- Nate McMillan and um, just trying to get a faster pace. Um, and that's another tough team that's supposed to be a, you know, a top five seed in the East as well. So you have those two you know, twice in the first week. And that's a pretty tough load to start off with. You get a little bit of a break with Brooklyn. So, you know, it's it'll be tough. I think, you know, we're looking at maybe them even going, you know, two and four in that first week of the season, um, just in my mind. But that's just me being pessimistic a little bit and, you know, and comparing the Bulls to, you know, the Pacers and Celtics a little bit. I'm I'm really excited for these Celtics games. Uh, not because I think the Bulls will win them, but I'm just I'm just fired up to see the Celtics team. I think they are going to be really exciting to watch. I think that uh, between Bradley and Marcus Smart and Jay Crowder, uh, like the perimeter defense there is is so intense that I think they're going to make like Rondo and Wade look even older and slower than they are just with their high intensity, their constant energy on the defensive end. Uh, you know, like Rondo, like a pretty turnover-prone point guard, I think is really going to struggle against Boston. And like you said, with Horford, his style of play is the absolute worst kind of matchup for a guy like Robin Lopez. But Lopez is just always going to sink really, really deep in the pick and roll and just kind of concede that mid-range jumper to Al Horford. And Al Horford has made many millions of dollars uh, knocking down that shot. So I think that, the I, I mean, between uh, the three of us, I've got a few gummy bears on Boston to make the finals is, is a bit of a long shot. No, I totally agree. I mean, if you made me pick a team that, Not other than Cleveland, yeah, that's going to represent the East in the finals, I think yeah. they're easily the no-brainer pick. I mean, yeah. I really like everything they have. And I think... You know, I, it's it's hard for me to disagree with anything you just said. I think Horford's really going to give the Bulls a lot of trouble. Um, he's going to make Lopez work. And as good as Lopez is in the paint, he's not, he really does not become as effective a, a player when he has to get drawn out. Horford's going to make him come out and kind of have to yeah. force him to be more mobile. I also think Isaiah Thomas is going to absolutely eat against anybody that the Bulls have defend him but unless they maybe throw Michael Carter Williams at him very early on. But I think that he's I think he's easily a better guard than anyone on the Bulls roster. And I, I think that it's 
very, very likely that the Bulls are going to drop both of those games against the Celtics. The thing that worries me about the Pacers is that the win that the Bulls had against them in the preseason, I know the Bulls, I don't, I don't believe they were playing Jimmy Butler. They did. I'm fairly sure they played Wade and Rondo. Pacers did not play Paul George. And, I mean, I think that as good as Butler is on this team, and as much as we all love him, I think that the Pacers, I think Paul George means a lot more to them in terms of what they want to accomplish in terms of being the best and the leader of that team. And I think when he comes back in there, it's going to be it's going to be fun to see Butler and George compete against them. And I know the Bulls did well against the Pacers last year in the regular season, but I, I think that it's very possible they could drop both games against the Pacers too. I think they'll probably split one of the opening or the opening two games with them. And then in terms of the Knicks. I mean, I, I think we're all in agree that they're probably going to beat the Nets, but the, the Lopez family reunion. But the, the, that Nets game, I, I think that Rose and Miller are going to come back. And me, I mean, Rose, you know, he's always got the same look on his face. I think that he's going to be very excited to play. I think Noah's going to be pissed. And I think Noah's going to come out. And I bet if, if he's healthy, I know that, um, Fire, you mentioned before we started, he had that about, I think it was some leg injury or something that he was dealing with in the preseason. But if he comes in healthy to that game, I he you know he's a guy that he's an emotional guy, and when he's playing with that emotion, he's he's just a tornado. He's and I'm not just saying that because of the shot. He is, uh, he's a menace, and I think he's going to give the Bulls so many problems if he comes into that game healthy. And I think that it's very likely that they come in and they embarrass Chicago in their own stadium. It's kind of a middle finger to Garpax. You know, I think it's I think it's going to be two very mediocre teams to just kind of fight each other with wet noodles for the you know maybe the eighth or ninth seed. But you know, the one thing I keep thinking about this game, I think it's going to get a little chippy. I think you're going to see absolutely. Like you were talking, Noah's going to come in a little pissed off, and you know you might even see some emotion from Rose. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see a little chippiness from him, you know, in that game and kind of going at some guys. So uh, that's what I'm going to be looking forward to, just kind of seeing how they kind of just go at the Bulls and, you know, just, if you know, I think kind of goes down and just how they act towards everything. If Rondo and Noah get into a fight, who do you support? Oh, uh, God. Noah. Noah. <laughs> that's, 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 I'm mad that you even asked that question. Yeah, I'm barely supporting Rondo. I would, I, I'm, oh, Rondo is the worst. Talk about people who are just bad people. Like Rondo, Rondo masquerades is like, oh, he's he's smart and moody. Like, no, like there are plenty of smart people who aren't a holes. I, <laughs> I don't know. If, if the fight goes down, I know. Oh I know man, that I'm not. Uh, my my head uh, says Rondo, my heart says Joaquin. Yeah, it just I just want to. Uh, just about the, the Pacers matchup, I think it's actually kind of fortuitous that we're catching them early in the season. I think that they're, they've got a lot of weird new pieces, and I think that uh, come playoff time, they might be an interesting Eastern Conference contender, but I think they're going to struggle in the beginning of the year. Uh, just with like with Monte and Jeff Teague, uh, there's just a ton of overlap there in terms of skill set with those two. And I think that Thaddeus Young is a talented player, but the same regard, he's, you know, he's not a, you got a bunch of guys who are good at kind of hunting their own shot and not a lot of guys who uh, have shown to be able to fit into like a, a firm team concept. I think that like Paul George, or excuse me, that George Hill was hugely underrated for the Pacers uh, the, the past few years. So I think that the Bulls could take advantage of this team still kind of getting to know each other in the first uh, couple weeks of the season. And so uh, that is, you know, playing the Celtics twice right off the bat, not going to be great. But playing the Pacers early on, not so bad. Yeah, I think they personally, I think kind of looking at that matchup, I think they split those two games, maybe even the home and home. They just split those. Um, I'm really interested to see how much they play small ball. I know last year they they had C.J. Miles at the four quite a bit, um, and they went away with it. But even with Nate McMillan taking over, I really want to see kind of how they move them towards that four spot because I think if you roll out a lineup with them 
with like Teague, Ellis, George, Miles, and Turner, I mean, you can really do some damage, I think. You know, down the line, not right away, but down the line, I think oh, you could really Totally agree. That, that I, I like C.J. Miles, and I, I give C.J. Miles a lot of credit for, for stepping up last year when Paul George kind of made us think about playing power forward. Like, whatever that really means in today's NBA, like, what's a power forward? But C.J. Miles, you know, I think uh, part of the reason he he faded after that hot start was because he was just banging bodies and yep. some nagging injuries. But I, I agree. I think that that five man group uh, with with CJ miles, it could be, could be very effective. Yeah. They can get very creative with their lineups. Hell, you could even put in Thad young at center and CJ miles at <laughs> power forward and go ultra small. But yeah, I mean, I think McMillan can get pretty creative with that group and they're kind of one of my sleeper teams. I think once the playoffs start, if they got things going the right way, they could do a little bit of damage, I think. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, I th- we went. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we went way over the time that we actually wanted to do for in terms of budgeting ourselves. But you know, we got to talk about everything we wanted to talk about, and there was a lot. Um, if you've stayed with us this long, we want to thank you for listening through the flagship podcast for Bull Session. Uh, we're going to try to deliver you weekly installments again. Uh, Jake Weiner will be back uh, next week to join us. So we want to thank you again for listening. And uh, we'll, it was it was great discussion, guys. I look forward to having it again with you guys real soon. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. Thank you, gentlemen.